I'm asking everyone in the congregation uh, to set aside time, to set aside something that normally would bring you comfort, to set aside something that is a distraction, to fast in some way, uh, to focus on the Lord in this season. It may be that you're at a place where you can, you can fast from a particular food or food group, or maybe you can even fast to, from food uh, for an extended period of time. Or maybe that you need to, to fast from something that's constantly a distraction uh, from the Lord. But it's an opportunity for us to focus on God uh, in this season. Um, I want you to know that this isn't just a, a, a season that we put on the calendar. It's not just three weeks and we say, you know what, we need to start the year somehow. How should we start it? Let's start it with prayer. Uh, we're starting the year focused on prayer because I, more than ever, am so, so aware of the fact that we need God to work in us and in our church and in our community. Um, in my 18 years here as, as pastor, um, it's, it's not that that's new. It's not that, um, you know, in the 18th year, I'm like, hey, maybe we should try prayer. A prayer is something that's been important from the very beginning. Um, when I first came as, as pastor, uh, we had a Wednesday night uh, Bible study. And it was uh, basically we would come in the sanctuary. There would be kids' classes that were happening. And at that time, I was just basically teaching a Sunday school class. People wanted me to just kind of teach some topic on the Bible. And I converted that into a prayer meeting um, because I knew that we had to have God's presence among us. And when people heard prayer meeting, they thought, okay, we're going to come. We're going to share some prayer requests. And then you'll pray and then you'll do the lesson, right? And I was like, no, we're going we're gonna to spend extended time in prayer. And that's what we're going to do tonight. Again, we're going to spend extended time in prayer because that's what God calls us to do. He wants us to have a relationship with him. Early on in uh, the, the ministry here, there was a book that really encouraged me in this. is Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala, and I, I would pass that book out to everyone I, I could. And actually, the first year that Nicole and I were here uh, serving, uh, we actually still had a school uh, here at Faith Church at the time, and there were five students in the school, and of those five students, uh, two were seniors. And so they got to go on a senior trip, and they wanted to go to New York. And they selected Nicole and I to be their chaperone. So Nicole and I, at the ripe old age of 22, took a couple of 17-year-olds uh, and uh, some underclassmen to New York for a full week. I look back and I'm like, I can't believe these parents let us do this. And they wanted to see, you know, the Statue of Liberty and the Empire State Building, all of us. And they, they picked all of these sites they wanted to see. But I wanted to see the Brooklyn Tabernacle, where Jim Cimbala was pastor. And I wanted us to go to their prayer meeting. Because they were a church that was known for prayer. Their prayer meetings were often their largest attended gatherings. And we went, and because they were a church that was known for prayer, that was serious about prayer, people would call this church from around the nation to, to ask the church to pray. And so we're there at the service, and as you walked in, they would hand you a card if you would be willing to pray about a need. They would hand you cards. And the, the, the need that I got was someone had called the church because their daughter had run away from home. Um, and I know that it's so important that we share prayer requests with one another, and often, yes, hey, so-and-so is, is sick, and those are all important. But it, it, it struck me like this is someone somewhere out in the nation that I don't know, and they're in a crisis. And they've reached out to a church that they know is serious about prayer 
that, that, that desire for the, there to be someone who can get a hold of God, who can connect to God and bring their need before Him. I'm sure that there's been a moment in every one of our lives where we felt something similar to that. There is some great need. Man, I need God's help. Maybe there's been a time in your life that you've reached out to people in your life that you know, man, when they pray, they talk to God. They're serious about prayer. They're, they actually pray. I want you to see through this series, I want you to see that that can be you. And that can be us. That we can each be people who talk to God. That you don't have to be some nationally renowned church or some Christian who's known Jesus for all of these years, but that God wants to have a relationship with you. My prayer is that these 21 days of prayer and this month of sermons will move us a little closer to being a praying church, which will also make us a transformative church. And over the last many years, uh, I've just constantly learned again and again and again, year after year after year, that I don't know what I'm doing. And that I do not have the power to bring about the change that is needed in the lives of people. That only God can. And this was never more clear to me than in 2020, when probably all of us experienced some type of powerlessness where the world turned completely upside down. I know that I did. And in that time, I prayed out to God in desperation like I never have before. And I went seeking the power, the transformative power that God can bring. And what I found in every instant of God showing up is that first there were people who were serious about prayer. They called on God and God met with them. And the more I learn about prayer, the more powerless I feel. And that's a good thing. And I want to show you why from Matthew 18. Matthew 18 verse 1 says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now let's look at verse 1 for just a moment. This verse starts off with, At that time. What time was that? Well, if you look back at chapter 17 with me, you'll see some really important events had just taken place. First of all, you'll see that Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. That's the first verses of 17. Peter, James, and John are witnesses to this transfiguration, which is like this peeling back of Jesus' humanity, and they're seeing his divinity. They're seeing that he is God. It's this powerful moment. Not all the disciples are able to see this, but Peter, James, and John do. They have this powerful experience. And then they come down the, from the mountain. They come down from the mountain, down from this transformative experience, and they immediately run into there's a father there with a son who desperately needs healing, who desperately needs a demon to be exercised. And the father says to Jesus, I have brought my son to your disciples, and they can't help him. And Jesus is able to help the child. And the disciples come to Jesus and they say, why couldn't we help him? Because at this point in their ministry, they had done these works. And Jesus said, this type comes only by prayer and fasting. You must have faith 
But this type comes only by prayer and fasting. That's in verses 20 and 21. And then, at the end of 17, there's this story that might kind of seem like just kind of an anecdote, just kind of a throwaway story. There are some people that see Peter, and they say, Peter, doesn't your master, does your master pay the temple tax? And Peter, being Peter, says, absolutely he pays the temple tax. And he has no idea if Jesus pays the temple tax. And so he goes back to Jesus to confirm, and Jesus responds to Peter and says, Peter, do the kings of the world, do they draw their taxes from their sons or from strangers? In other words, do princes pay taxes or do subjects pay taxes? And Peter says, well, subjects do. Jesus says, so would it be fitting for the Son of God to pay tax? And Peter says, well, I guess not. Jesus says, however, so that no one is offended, go fishing. And the first fish that you pull up, look in his mouth, and there'll be enough money for both of us to pay our temple tax and go pay it. Now, that story is incredible, right? I know some of you have told some whopper fish stories, okay, (laughs) that are pretty unbelievable, but none of you have told a story about finding money in the mouth of the fish. By the way, Jesus says there'll be money for both you and I. And there are some that believe that, that Peter and Jesus would have been the only in the disciple group who were old enough to pay the temple tax because the rest of them were younger. Jesus is working with predominantly a young group. Every other great move of God not only has been among a people who sought God in prayer, it started with young people. So, there's the Mount Transfiguration. There's this child that needs healing, can only come about by prayer and fasting. And third, there's this analogy about kings and kingdoms and who they draw their taxes from. And then they come asking Jesus in 18 and 1, We know you've talked about this kingdom that's coming, and and it's different. But just, you know, out of curiosity, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom? Who's going to be the princes in this kingdom? Who's going to have the power in this kingdom? Maybe one of us. And we know from other places in Scripture that the disciples were regularly arguing about who was the greatest and who was the favorite. And I'm sure the fact that Peter, James, and John got to go up on the mountain and the rest of them missed it. They're down in the valley failing to help someone dealing with the mess of ministry. There was a little bit of why did they get to go up there and we stayed down here and do this. But I want you to see how Jesus answers their question about who will be the most powerful because I think it'll be incredibly instructive on how we pray. Look at verse 2. Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. They're asking about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus says, listen, to even enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must humble yourselves and become like a little child. Verse 4, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Jesus says the way to be great in the kingdom is to be weak. 
is to be small, is to humble yourself. And this is so important because the greatest hindrance in our prayer lives is pride and insecurity. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, says, Oddly enough, most people struggle to pray because they're too busy focusing on prayer. We're trying to do it right. We're trying to say the right words. We're trying to get it all in place. We're focused on doing it right and being worthy of having our prayers answered and showing God that we're serious and that we mean business. Jesus tells the disciples that the greatest in the kingdom isn't the one who gets it right or the one who's the most impressive or the one with the right credentials. He says the one who becomes like a child. And in his book, A Praying Life, Miller points out that this isn't the only place where Jesus tells the disciples to be like children. He regularly tells them to be like children. There's this moment when Jesus is very busy doing ministry and there are these mothers that want to bring their children and their infants to Jesus so that he can hug on them, he can bless them, he can pray over them. And the disciples basically tell these mothers, listen, Jesus is busy, he ain't got time for all that. Get your snot-nosed kid out of here. We got other things to do. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Suffer the little children to come unto me. Do what needs to happen so that the children can come to me. For of such is the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, bring the kids to me because they're, they're cute and they're sweet. No, he says, bring them to me because of such is the kingdom of God. There's another occasion when the disciples, they have been sent out to do ministry in pairs. They go out to all of these multiple cities and they're proclaiming the gospel and they're seeing people healed. They're seeing brokenness restored, prayers answered. They come back and they tell Jesus, Jesus, it's incredible all of these things that happened. Demons were subject to being cast out. Lives were changed. People were healed. And Jesus stops and prays and says, God, I thank you that you have revealed these things not to the powerful and to the wise, but to children. They had the greatest impact in ministry when they were like children. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he starts off by saying, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Now that sounds totally normal to us because we are familiar with the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. But for the disciples and the culture that they were in, there was an incredible amount of respect and caution about the way you referred to God. When they were copying scriptures, they would not write out God's name. They would abbreviate it. They wouldn't say God's name. They were so afraid that they would use God's name in vain or in a way that was disrespectful or flippant. They were incredibly cautious. And so for Jesus to say, listen, when you start your prayer, start by saying, Father. Call him with a familiar name. Now, I'm not encouraging to be disrespectful or flippant about how you pray and how you address God. But what Jesus was telling the disciples is that when you pray, come to God like a child speaking to their father. Why is Jesus regularly telling the disciples to be like children? 
because children are humble enough and they haven't learned any pretense yet. They haven't learned to only say the right thing, right? If you're a parent, you have no doubt been mortified by something your child said. <laughs> Friends of ours, there, they were at the grocery store with their kids, and their little daughter looked at the lady in front of them in the checkout line in the grocery store and said, Mom, that woman's behind looks like a big pumpkin. And children don't know. They just say what is on their minds. To say whatever comes into their heads. Probably some of you have been incredibly humbled by your own children. Once we were watching a, a ball game and a commercial came on for this diet supplement. And Lincoln looked at me and said, Dad, maybe you should try that. <laughs> children haven't learned to only say the right thing. Kids say what comes to their mind. If it comes to their mind, they're going to say it. Probably you've been in situations where you can see what your kid is thinking. And you're like, don't you say it. Don't you say it. Be quiet. They haven't learned yet to edit their thoughts so as not to be offensive or to say the wrong thing or to be misconstrued. And as we get older, we do this. We think things and we don't say them. By the way, which is a good thing. I'm not encouraging you to say everything that comes into your mind. But often we come to God like this. And here's why that doesn't really work. God knows what you're thinking. He knows your heart. He knows your need. We usually come to God and we try to keep up appearances. We put on pretense. We use stained glass, churchy words that we never use at any other time except when we're praying. Especially if we're praying in front of other people. Fortunately, we usually come to God like we're in a job interview. When you interview for a job, there's a power dynamic. You're asking a person for a job. Clearly, that's the person who can grant you to get this job or not. You need something from them. You're acknowledging their authority, but you're also there to show why you're a great candidate. You brag on yourself. You go over your skills and your accomplishments. You present a resume of why you are great for this job. Friend, listen, there is no resume that we can submit to God that earns an answer to our prayers or a status before him. The disciples were trying to determine how to be important in God's kingdom. And Jesus is showing them everyone in the kingdom of God is important. In fact, let me show you just how important the littlest, the smallest, the weakest is. Look at verse 6 of Matthew 18. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... Literally, the word there is to stumble. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, most of us didn't go to work at the mill this week, so you not, might not be familiar with a millstone. But it's a large, large rock, a large stone that would be turned or lifted and set again on grain to grind the grain. It was a huge stone. 
Basically, Jesus is saying, if you would cause one of these weak ones, one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you if a large boulder were tied around your neck and you were cast into the sea. And why is Jesus using such descriptive language? He's wanting to make it clear. Listen, there is no one who is so small that they're insignificant in the kingdom. If you cause one of these little ones, one of these weak ones, to be offended and to stumble... I will hold you accountable because they matter. They matter to me. Verse 7 says, Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And then I want you to see what Jesus says in verses 8 and 9 about how important it is to enter the kingdom. He says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life, lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet and to be cast into everlasting fire. Or if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hell fire. Jesus says, listen, if you offend one of these little ones, you're in big trouble. This is a big deal. We constantly posture ourselves and try to put ourselves in a better light. Little kids haven't learned this behavior yet. They're not worried about it. We need to be changed back into that to come to the Father. We need to see our status with God isn't because of our strength. It isn't because of our impressiveness. It isn't because we've got two hands and two feet and we're strong. Jesus drives this point home, this point home further by saying, listen, if your left hand offends you, cut it off. Get rid of it. You are better off entering into the kingdom of God without one of your hands, without one of your legs, without one of your eyes. And to the disciples, this would have been madness. Because, well, that's that's my strength. You're saying I'd be better off to be handicapped or disabled? Yes. Yes, Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying it would be better for you to be lame or maimed and be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven not trusting in your own strength, not trusting in your own ability, weak enough to rely on me. I remember years ago, a sermon that really had a lot of impact in my life I heard Matt Chandler was preaching at a seminary in Louisville. He was preaching to a room full of men studying to be pastors. And he said to them, some of you, God is going to be gracious enough to allow you to fail repeatedly so that you know how desperately you need him. And some of you are going to be unfortunate enough to be successful in all that you do. And because of your success, you will think that you do not need God. And that your status earns you a seat at the table. What Jesus is saying here is you're better off failing. You're better off being maimed and weak if you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes a little bit further. further. Look at verse 10. Take heed or be cautious that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety and nine that did not go astray. Even so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus would say elsewhere that there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that comes to repentance than over ninety-nine just persons which, quote, need no repentance. What Jesus is showing us here is that status in the kingdom of God does not work like status in this life. The disciples, remember, have asked him, who will be greatest in this new kingdom? And Jesus says it looks nothing like what you'd expect. It's not what you're thinking. You don't earn status by climbing a ladder or being successful or being impressive. So don't attempt it. Don't try it greatest in the kingdom will be the one who is willing to humble himself like a child. How can, how can we have a praying life? We can pray like children. Pray like a child. Pray like a child who's, who's willing to come to the Father and with no pretense, no pretending to be something that they aren't. Willing to say whatever need is on their heart, whatever comes in their mind. I think that the greatest hindrance in prayer for you, when you leave here and you have an opportunity to pray, or tomorrow morning when you wake up and you have an opportunity to pray, is that you, you sit down, you find a quiet spot, and you say, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I, I hear Pastor Daniel pray at church, and he knows all these big words. I don't know those words. I didn't go to college. I've, I've heard some of the other guys at church pray, and I can't, I can't talk like they can. And unfortunately, it's just the nature of when we're gathered together in church, people hate speaking in public. They especially don't want to be called on to pray unless they're comfortable. And so we call on someone to pray, and they pray comfortably, and it, perhaps it makes you feel like, I, I can't pray like that. And you come to a worship gathering like this one and you hear pastors pray and you hear other believers pray and you go home and you go, I can't do that. I want you to know that in God's kingdom, there isn't some impressive prayer status that you need to achieve. But like a child, you can come to a father. In Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, which Pastor Eric and I read this past year, it had a great impact on me, and I strongly encourage you to you. The first section is, is called Pray Like a Child. And he tells multiple stories in the book about his special needs daughter. And his special needs daughter struggles to, to speak. And they, they get this computer for her that she can type on, and it will speak for her. It will communicate what it is that... She wants, and they've been trying to help her use this, and they've got it, and they go on a vacation, and they, they continue to work with it. And while they're on vacation at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, right after they've just had a big lunch, 
she types in enough keys to communicate, and the computer says, McDonald's. And he said, we didn't say, no, we just had lunch. We didn't say, honey, you really should say, please, can I have some McDonald's? He said, what we did is we threw everybody in the car. And we got McDonald's. Because our daughter communicated with us. And if you were to go home today and your child asked you for something, but they used bad grammar or wasn't very polite, I hope you'd just be glad. You know, last Sunday, um, I noticed a group of people standing around Pastor Eric and Cherish's one-year-old son, Dietrich. And he took like four steps. And everybody cheered. And I was like, it's not that impressive. I mean, I walked. I can run. It's not fast, but I can run. I mean, you guys want to see, you know? No, everybody cheered, right? Friend, let me tell you, you go home, you say your first words in prayer. Heaven cheers. Over that prayer more than over the prayers of 99 just persons attempting to impress God with their status. It would be better to limp, to crawl before the throne of God and mutter a broken word. God would celebrate that prayer. How can you have a praying life? Just start by praying like a child. And what's beautiful about this is it's not just a picture of how God welcomes our prayers. It's a beautiful picture of how God welcomes us. We don't enter into the throne room. We don't come before him because we're impressive. Because we've done so much. or We've earned our way. We come before him because Jesus made the way. He has given us access. Scripture says, let us boldly enter into the throne room. Because Jesus has made the way. He's purchased our access with his blood. You can walk into the kingdom of heaven or limp or crawl because Jesus has made it possible. And the more you pray, the more powerless you'll feel. And that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.